think it's the ability of a cartographer to represent the complexity of the real world on a map. I think that's the challenge that I enjoy the most. I think it probably goes back to secondary school. My two favorite subjects were geography and technical drawing. And also my brother was a draftsman at OS at the time, and he sent me the application form for to join on that survey as a calligraphic uh, assistant. And I thought, yep, I really fancy the idea of doing that. And yeah, here we are. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and this is a brief history of stuff. You'll hear fascinating stories about the ordinary objects around you in this podcast, all, of course, inspired by historic items from the Science Museum Group collection. Now, hi, Jim. Nice to meet you. Hi, Nihal. Nice to meet you, too. I'm Jim Goldsmith. For the background, I joined Ordnance Survey in 1978 as a cartographic assistant, so I've been here a very long time. My current role is the senior production manager of the data derivation team. I've seen many changes over the years since I started at Ordnance Survey in the way maps are produced and the tools and the systems that we use to produce those maps. I think it's a lot easier now. It's much easier to measure things easily and more accurately than when I was in a training course for three months learning how to sharpen gramophone needles and measure those under a Nixo to make sure that the line gauge was right. So Jim, is there still a place for maps in today's digital world? Yeah, absolutely there is. Although people love their technology, paper maps are still important. We would always recommend at Ordnance Survey that when you go out, particularly into remote areas, even if you've got your tech with you, that you do have a paper map with you. Paper map sales are still popular. People still actually love holding on to something physical. Well, look, Jim, we're going to find out more about the history of the ruler of all things, because that's something that's important to plotting your direction while being on a map, and also how engineering drawings helped change our world with Chris Valkoinen, who is an expert from the National Railway Museum, who's just written a book about engineering drawings in the collection. Hello, lovely to meet you, Chris. Hello, it's great to meet you too now. Can you tell us a little about what it is that you do? So... I spend most of my time getting drawings out and digitizing them, along with plenty of other material as well, for all the researchers that want to make use of our archives. We've got about a million drawings in our collection. I should say the 7 million figure that you quote often on the podcast, I don't think quite takes account of all those million of drawings, but it keeps me busy full time, that's for sure. So... During the course of this series, Chris, as you know, we've looked at the everyday objects that are around us. And one of the things we're going to discuss today is indeed the ruler. So where does the story of the ruler begin? And why is it applicable to what we're talking about today? So the ruler goes all the way back to ancient Sumeria. The oldest surviving ruler that we have dates from... 2650 before common era BCE, which is around a century older than the Great Pyramids. And there are probably plenty of rulers before that as well, when it came from a city called Nippur. 
the nipper cubit rod because that was the length that it measured. And those rulers are so important because measuring things was so important so early. That ruler dates from around the period in which the evolution of writing was more or less coming to an end. And we were probably measuring things way before then. So it's just as important a part of our human history to measure things as it is to write things down. Tell me about the length of a cubit. What is it the equivalent of for trying to understand it? Yeah, so a cubit is the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. And you could actually break that down into smaller amounts. It could be broken down into fingers or palms, uh, thumbs as well. It was all based upon body parts. There are other measurements that we know today that are based on body parts like the foot as well. But the cubit was what was being used most during this period in ancient history. And we find cubit rods in the tombs of ancient Egyptian officials as well. To begin with, they were very unsophisticated. The nipper cubit rod is just a rod of copper with notches cut into it to denote the lengths. So it wasn't a uniform measurement? It definitely wasn't uniform to begin with. As people began to trade more, it became more important that the cubit was a bit more standardised and you got to the point probably around when our cubit rod was made that you could find a standard cubit for each city-state. So you can imagine if you were trading between different cities, each time you were talking about a measurement, it would mean something different to people from different cities. And quite a few different trades had their own measures as well. If you look into Europe, you have things like the furlong, which we still see in horse racing today, or lots of strange and different measures being used. But it was fundamentally important for trading because you wanted to know that the measures you were using were accurate. No one wants to be ripped off. If I say that I want to buy a cubit's length of yarn or something like that, then I want to know what I'm buying and what I'm trading. And if we're in a bartering system, you want to know that what I'm giving you in return is what I'm promising to give you. That caused a lot of conflict. It even appears in the Magna Carta. Clause 35 sets out standards to weights and measures for grain and wine and beer and things like that. And even throughout the centuries would form an important factor in different revolutions as well. How did weights and measures become a factor in a revolution? Changes in the definitions of different units could become a source of conflict. Governments would exercise their power of control over people by changing these units and eventually people would push back. It's something that we see in the French Revolution. It becomes an important part of the push of the French Revolution to move towards the metric system. And one of the reasons is that it started to define units not against a physical object or anything like that. It was defining them against physical constants. So we're looking at using longitude and latitude and other things like that that couldn't be changed to define units of length. And that then allowed people to trade over distance and understand 
that they could rely on what they were doing and also that it was much more difficult then for governments to switch up and change the size of units as well. So in 1960 is the first attempt at creating a full system of measurements that defines everything, weights, units of time, units of length, mass. But it's also a system that's designed to change as our understanding of the world changes. The last update that we made to that system was only two years ago in 2019 when a new definition for the kilogram was introduced. So measurements are not static then? I think the desire is to move towards something that can be static. The problem with defining measurements against something that we store away somewhere as an analogy to a weight or a length or something like that is that that individual item can change over time. So instead, by defining lengths and units with a constant that can be measured separately and will never change, eventually we get to that system where everything is constant. Jim, we've just been talking about the French Revolution. Wasn't the Ordnance Survey founded around this time? We were indeed. The official recognised date for the birth of Ordnance Survey was the 21st of June, 1791. There are two key historic characters who are connected with that. The first was William Roy, and his work paved the way for modern surveying. He understood the strategic importance of accurate maps. Sadly, he didn't actually see that date. He died in 1790, but his vision for the National Survey of Britain was realised in 1791. The other one is Charles Lennox. So he was the third Duke of Richmond and Master General of the Board of Ordnance who started the detailed triangulation of the South Coast of England. And from that, the first Ordnance Survey map was created and published in 1801. Didn't actually have Ordnance Survey on it. It was the officers of the Board of Ordnance, which is why we are still Ordnance Survey. One of the reasons why Ordnance Survey was a military organisation to start with, because they had the surveyors and you had the sappers and things from the Royal Engineers to actually lug all the heavy equipment about. You obviously needed lots of skills as well because you needed engravers. So the mapping to actually be printed was engraved on copper plate and then printed onto linen back parch paper so that you could actually met it. And they were quite big sections as well. Well, look, when we think about technical drawings, because it has the word technical in it, presumably we're thinking about the 19th, the 20th, and certainly the 21st century. But of course, you're going to prove me wrong and tell me that actually technical drawing goes way further back. Indeed, yes, it does go back quite a long way. The oldest example that we have of a technical drawing that still survives is a plan for a temple produced by Prince Gudea of Lagash. And we're back in Sumeria again. It was a Sumerian city-state on the Tigris. We're only 85 miles away from Nippur, but there is about 500 years separating this map and the cubit rod. This drawing is actually on a statue that survived. Prince Gudea had planned out this temple and 
it included a number of different statues of him and one of the statues depicts him holding a plan of the temple in his hands and that's the first example that we have of any kind of technical or architectural drawing chances are there were some before that but if they were produced on any kind of medium that wasn't going to survive we wouldn't see it now the fact that it was a statue is why it's managed to survive so long we certainly know that the romans 2,000 years later, we're producing plenty of drawings, but none of them survive. But we have references to them in the writings that have survived. And throughout history after that, we have lots of different professions that are producing different varieties of drawings. But because there's very infrequently any movement between these different professions and everyone's working to apprenticeships, we don't necessarily see a lot of sharing of those skills between the tradesmen and people that were producing them. But uh, meet a man called Gaspard Monge in France. He's born in 1746 and he doesn't come from a noble family, but he wants to join the military. In order to become an officer in the French military or the French Navy, you needed to come from noble stock and he didn't. But what he could do was become a draftsman. So he joins one of the drawing offices is an apprentice, but he's had a bit more of a traditional education. He's learned for about Descartes and things like that, and he's learned his mathematics. And he looks at the methods that all his colleagues are using and, and thinks, no, I can do better than that, and starts developing his own techniques to create these drawings. And he develops what's known as descriptive geometry. What those engineering drawings do, unlike maps, is that they can take a 3D object and record it in two dimensions on a piece of paper. And it's revolutionary compared to the techniques they were using before. He manages to produce uh, some drawings for a fort in a really short period of time. And his teachers think that he's been wasting his time and not done his work properly until they look at the work he's done and realize the quality of it. And suddenly they realize that there's something special. And within about six years, at the age of 23, he's already a professor teaching his techniques in the French military. But all his techniques, they're all considered military secrets. So for quite some time, it's all retained within the French military, all these techniques. It doesn't make it far beyond that. How do Monge's ideas end up coming to the UK? They did eventually, the cat go out of the bag, as it were, spread across Europe. But um, we had, to say the least, a fractious relationship with our French cousins, didn't we? That must have prevented these ideas presumably coming over across the channel. Yes, that's right. So Monge himself rises up in the French military and navy. And after the French Revolution, he even has a period of time where he's the head of the French navy. He eventually starts to make what he's produced public in 1795. But by that point, Britain and France were at war. And between that and the Channel, there is very little prospect of his ideas making it to Britain, even whilst they tended to spread across Europe quite quickly. And there were schools being set up across Europe that would teach the skills that Monge had developed. However, 
There was possibly one way in which the skills that Monge had developed made it across to Britain, and that was with a man called Mark Brunel, who was a contemporary of Monge. He was born in 1769, and his father would have liked him to join the church, but he had no interest in joining the church at all. He liked playing with machines, he was interested in carpentry, but he showed an aptitude for drawing and he was sent off to learn from a naval professor in Rouen who would have certainly taught Mark all of Monge's technical skills that he'd developed. And then at the age of 17, Mark goes off into the French Navy for six years somewhere around the Caribbean for a long period of time. When he gets back to France in 1792, everything has changed. The revolution has happened and he is, unlike Monge, a staunch royalist. But that's not a very safe thing to be in France, presumably. Yes. So it was becoming increasingly clear that he wasn't safe, but the people that he was lodging with in Rouen after he returned from his voyages in the Caribbean, had connections with the American envoy. And they managed to get Mark permission to go to America to try and obtain grain for the French Navy. It was entirely on false pretenses. He had no intention of returning. But on the way to Le Havre to catch a ship to America, he's thrown off of his horse. And none other than Monge stops to help Mark and actually gives him a ride to Le Havre. Mark has a particularly difficult journey on the way to America because at some point he realizes that he's lost his passport and the ship is being boarded by French revolutionaries and he's in serious danger at that point of being captured. And he manages to forge the documents in a really short period of time and somehow gets past and makes it all the way to America. He goes off adventuring for a while. Then he gets involved in a project to build a canal that links the Hudson River to the St. Lawrence River, which then enables ships to navigate between New York and Montreal. He enters a competition to design the US Capitol building and almost actually does it. It is the designer's favorite design, but they realize it's going to be far too expensive to build it, so it's turned down. And he even becomes New York's chief engineer. So he's becoming a very important person very quickly. And he even becomes friends with Alexander Hamilton, the guy from the musical, one of the US founding fathers. And it's at a dinner with Hamilton with another French emigre that he learns about some problems that the British are having with building the ships for the Navy. One of the important components for the wind-powered sailing ships of the period is what are called ship's blocks. They're essentially the pulleys that they use on all of the ropes to manipulate the sails. And the British need to make about 100,000 of these a year, and they're really struggling to do it. So when Mark learns of this, he has quite a few ideas for a machine he could make that would be able to produce these blocks a lot quicker. And Hamilton, surprisingly, persuades Mark to go to Britain 
and present these ideas to the Admiralty and even writes a letter of introduction for Mark to get him an audience with the necessary people to present these ideas. He does, after some reluctance, sails to Britain, presents these ideas for the ship blocks, and it's success. And he is suddenly making quite a bit of money. Someone that was living with Mark, her name was Sophie Kingdom. She'd come from England and was boarding in the same house as where Mark was living when he came back. She gets thrown into a convent for a period of time as a prisoner after the war had started with England. And she was very lucky to escape from there. Many of the people that ended up in that convent were guillotined. And he gets married to Sophie after he finds her. He finds her quite quickly, Sophie Kingdom. And in 1806, Sophie gives birth to Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who is a rather famous name in the world of railways. Wow. So it's inevitable, presumably, that Mark nurtured an interest in engineering for his son. Yes, Isambard gets involved at quite a young age with some of the projects that his father is doing. He is working on the Rotherhithe Tunnel. Isambard almost dies at one point when the tunnel floods. But certainly Mark taught Isambard a lot of the drawing skills that he'd picked up in France. Isambard's own drawings that he produces show a lot of the hallmarks of Monge's techniques. You can quite often recognize them from the quality of the shading and the coloring. Very aesthetically pleasing to look at. I'm going to bring it back to rulers. Obviously a crucial piece of equipment for draftsmen. What has the impact of that been? I mean, rulers are are a really important part of the technology for producing technical drawings. Um, not just because we're measuring things with them, but because also we use them to draw straight lines, which seems such a basic thing to say, but it is actually a fairly fundamental part of the technology of engineering drawing. And that is incredibly important in how it advances technology, because no longer do you need to rely on word of mouth or being able to write down instructions, as soon as you have an engineering drawing, you can show someone what you need them to make, what you need them to build, whether it's a a building, a ship, a machine, a railway locomotive, or even if you're actually looking at things like anatomy and things like that for medicine, all of these areas being important in which technical drawing plays an important role. And it also means that you can do other other important things in terms of how you communicate these ideas because communicate over distance by physically taking your drawing somewhere, but you can communicate over time as well. That's something that's really important for our users in the archives because they can look at what was being done 200 years ago for their research. But also it means if you're in a business of, say, building railway locomotives, then you can be rest assured that you can come back in 20 years time and look at what you did to be able to make replacement parts. And finally, the other thing that you can do with engineering drawings is that you can do your process of invention on a piece of paper. You don't need to build models anymore to create something. You can do it from your mind onto a piece of paper or 
in these days, you can do it on a computer with 3D CAD design software. Whichever method you're doing, you're producing these drawings and you can see how the parts of your machine or a building or anything else are going to interact with each other, which is a much quicker process than trying to produce some kind of scale model. Technical drawing, Jim, how important is that for map making? Yeah, I mean, it is important because actually our triangulation pillars all around the country, there were technical drawings that were drawn so that you could have a standard trig station built to the same specification all the time. So technical drawings were used for that um, purpose. Looking back to when I was led, when everything was done by hand, you could say that the master survey document that the surveyors would actually revise on could be considered as a technical document. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of similarity between the skills you need and rulers and measurements and triangulation and all the skills that you need and the processes that you need to produce mapping. During the Industrial Revolution, how in demand were skilled engineers and, of course, draftsmen, I presume mostly men, doing this? But how important was these technical drawings to the advancements that took place during the Industrial Revolution, Chris? They were incredibly important, not just because there was a lot of fairly basic design work that needed doing. So you needed a lot of people that could do a lot of design work at very fine scales on small components. But also it's an important skill in terms of driving the Industrial Revolution because once we have those skilled draftsmen that can share their ideas and their designs amongst each other to divide up the work, when it's just an engineer with an idea in his head, he has to do everything himself to make it until he can train someone else to do the same thing that he's doing. Whereas if someone else only needs the skill to read an engineering drawing, then that person has a much easier time. And I would say actually that although it was certainly in the 19th century, mostly men that were producing these drawings, once you get into the 20th century, most of the drawings that we hold in our collections now were probably actually produced by women, not because they were necessarily doing the design work. So into the middle of the 19th century, with the development of photography, one of the processes that comes along at the same time as that is blueprinting. Part of that process is taking the draftsman's work and producing that wax linen or tracing paper copy that then you can produce more copies from. And the tracers, as they were known, were usually, once you get into the 20th century, women. What about the impact of engineering drawings today? Are they still used? Or is it more likely to be computer-aided design? Today, we see very little use of physical engineering drawings in terms of the design process at least you might be printing some drawings at some point but they would all be produced with different versions of CAD software computer-aided design software unfortunately it is a bit of a dying art these days to be able to produce a physical drawing by hand and Jim, are there pieces of equipment that you could look back in the history of the Ordnance Survey that really pushed forward the history of map making with speed? 
Yeah, there are many things that have happened through Warner Survey's history. Sadly, war does tend to push technology on because you need to improve the mapping for defences. I mean, Ordnance Survey's been there through two world wars. The data that we used for the modern master map goes back to the original decision to start digitising large-scale holdings of data way back in the 1970s. And the first digital products were produced in the 1990s. Modern technology today, if you've got richly attributed data in your database, you can produce automatic maps. I think the biggest challenge for any national mapping agency or anyone wanting to produce maps automatically, strangely enough, is text placement because you've got such an array of data in the main database. I mean, we capture 20,000 changes a day into our main database. The key thing is to actually remove clutter. Clutter on maps just add confusion, and that's where cartographers are really good at understanding, taking that data and visualizing it in the best way possible, along with the best projection as well, because obviously we're trying to map something that's on a globe and we're trying to represent that on a piece of paper and that's a a really difficult task yeah that challenge presumably has been ever thus it has been ever thus yeah indeed and then nature obviously doesn't tell us when it's going to change things either so natural and gradual change erosion and things how will you make maps in the future I think the future's already started in certain things. I mean, the key thing for any accurate map production is the source data that you have. I think there's still a role for, certainly for cartographers to, they're really good at visualizing data. So whether that be on paper, which is still very important, down to looking at the information and actually then using that on a web map. You've got certain things on Ordnance Survey site where you've got a open data zoom map that you can download and it'll go through all the various scales and you style it yourself if you want, if you've got the skills in uh, in geospatial information systems. There's lots of things people can do with data themselves to visualize it. And Chris, what does the future hold for rulers and technical drawings? I think we're going to be looking at computers being fairly more dominant. Certainly, they're being used these days in terms of being able to model how materials behave, the stresses and tolerances that you can build to, and that can all be built into the design process as part of producing your digital drawings. As for rulers themselves, I like to think that they will continue to be an important part of our future as long as you need to be able to draw a straight line hopefully rulers will have a place in the world no that's true jim reflecting on what you've heard chris tell us about technical drawing and the ruler what have you found most revelatory i think that actually the tech drawing actually goes back that far I wouldn't even realize. I mean, I, I've known that you know, I used to study and do technical drawing at school, and it was one of my favorite subjects, but we never got told that it actually went back that far. Really interesting. Pleased to meet you, Chris. It was good. 
my gosh, for a boy who loved technical drawing at school, you really did get your dream job, didn't you, Jim? I did. Yeah, I'm very lucky. There's lots of history on the Ordnance Survey website. If anyone's interested, please go and look there because I definitely didn't do it justice. (laughs) You did. And Chris, where can people find out more about what it is that you do day in diet? Well, you can visit the Search Engine Library's website on the railwaymuseum.org.uk. And also from August 19th, you can pick up copies of my book, which will tell you lots about the engineering drawing collections, as well as how railways change the world, told through the drawings that were used to build them. Really good. And thank you, Chris, for introducing the name Gaspard Monge into my life. If I ever need a pseudonym for tax reasons, Gaspard Monge may be what I will go with. And Jim, thank you to you as well. A Brief History of Stuff is a Story, Things and Science Museum group production. Each episode features a story inspired by incredible items from the Science Museum group collection. The collection contains more than 7 million items which illustrate the impact of science, technology, engineering and medicine on all our lives. If you'd like to discover more stories about the everyday objects around you, then visit sciencemuseum.org.uk and search for everyday technology. Thanks to our guest, Jim Goldsmith from Ordnance Survey, and to Chris Farquhar from the National Railway Museum for taking part in this episode. The series producer is Will Stanley and executive producer is Hugh Gary. The script editor is Ian Stedman. Audio editor is Kenya Scarlett. And research for this episode was by Chris Farquhar. We would like to thank everyone at the Science Museum Group who made this podcast possible. If you'd like to support this podcast and our museums, then please do check out the Science Museum's online shop and you can claim an exclusive 10% discount on science-inspired gifts using the code SMGCAST10. Personally, I'd rather hit the code was Gaspard Monge 10 but they wouldn't allow me to do that. So we'll stick with SMGCAST10. If you like a brief history of stuff, we'd be over the moon if you would tell your friends and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast to help others discover these, what can I'm sure we can all agree on, are fascinating stories. Thank you for listening. I hope we've inspired you to wonder a little more about the remarkable stuff around you. <laughs>